Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, before we get started, I have a couple of announcements to go over. Uh, First announcement is that the annual conference begins on Monday. And those of you who haven't seen the schedule, that should be posted or there should be a hard copy printed out by Sunday morning out there for everybody. Registration starts, it's, it's out there now? Oh, out there. Okay, great. Wonderful, thank you. And you're not through. I'm going to be talking about you in a minute. Um, okay, so the schedules are out there. 11 o'clock registration starts, and then we'll serve lunch, and then the first speaker's up at 1.30. Second speaker will be Charlie Clough. He's up at 3.15. We had to make a switch at the a couple of days ago because of scheduling, and he will be talking about how to prepare your congregation to think correctly about global warming or climate change. So that will be a uh, that will be very good. That'll be 3:15 to 4:30. Uh, Dr. Whitcomb will be the first speaker at 1:30, and then Dr. Austin will be speaking on Monday night. We still need help with uh, need some volunteers to sign up for to help in the kitchen, help with transportation, or uh, various other things as well. And then after church on Sunday, we need uh, folks to stay after and to help with the setup of chairs uh, for the conference. And we will start that right after. Uh, right after class, and lunch will be provided uh, for those folks. The other thing that we need to uh, keep in mind, I think, is to really be in prayer for Chris Pashalik. He's going to be having surgery on Monday, and this is really a um, important uh, prayer request and, and uh, very difficult surgery because he has a tumor in the lower part of his spine. It's inside the spine. It's about a, the doctors are saying it's about a 50-50 chance to get it out. And, of course, they won't know until they get there whether it's malignant or not. So we just have to pray that they can get it out and it's not malignant. So, hmm? Pachikowski. What did I say? I never get it right. Pachikowski. I said Pachalik. No, it's Pachikowski. Okay. Um, then the other thing I want to show you, I mentioned this before, but I actually have a demo on this. Yes, Jack? Uh, class next Thursday night? No class next Thursday night. Everybody gets so tired that I've, I, a couple of years ago I decided I didn't want to speak to zombies. But we have our internet okay, okay, good, good. No class next Thursday night. That's good to go out over the, over the internet. No class on Thursday night. Everybody here works so hard, and they're so tired that it. Um, we usually had just a few people show up anyway, and 80% of them came from out of town. And then the last year or so, we, we didn't have too many of those, so it was just a small group. So I think it's good to have that uh, time to just sort of uh, get refreshed. Then the other thing that I wanted to show you, so that some of you who haven't seen this can actually see it at work, uh, Logos 3, they've just released Logos 4 that came out in November, but not all of the tools work yet. And one of the tools that doesn't work is the uh, conversion of the note feature from the version 3 to version 4. 
They have a note feature in version 4, but they haven't worked out the conversion process yet. So this only works in the old version. Now, we got about 100 or so discs that the English ESV, English Standard Version uh, publishers put out that has a copy of their Bible, the ESV, which is okay. Uh, I mean, it's as good as most translations. And uh, it comes with that on it and the Logos 3 version. And I understand you can still go to the Logos website and buy some other things that will work with the Logos 3 uh, program because Logos 4 is completely different. And until they get it fully functional, they really encourage everybody to use those, both versions. So I know that's confusing, but just stick with 3. And what it, what it does is that we have a uh, guy who just did a tremendous amount of work by the name of Art Booth, who some years ago started working with Morris Proctor. And uh, he had been listening to me for uh, since pretty early on when I was at Preston City. I didn't know him. I just knew the name from tape orders. And he started working with uh, with Art I mean, with uh, Morris, who teaches the Logos program. So he really learned all the little intricacies in the uh, Logos program. And they have this note feature. So if you open your Bible to Revelation uh, and you are, um, I'm going to look for something here, and you're reading through the book of Revelation and you're studying and you want to see, well, what did Robbie teach about what this verse in Revelation he created note files from the transcripts of almost everything that I've taught since I started at Preston City. And those show up as these little post-it notes. On any book that you have in the Logos library that is versified, by that I mean any commentary that's on Revelation, any, any Bible that's, you know, versified, Revelation 1-1 or 1-2 or whatever, you can just scroll through and you see the little post-it notes. And when you put your, and over here I've got a Greek text, so it shows up there as well. You put your uh, cursor over the little post-it note, and a little window will open showing uh, the transcript of what I taught on, on that particular lesson. Now, you can't really do anything with that except maybe look at it, and you can't scroll through those little view windows. But if you do want to read it, you can click on the note itself, Wait a minute, it's, it's got to be near the top. You can click on the note itself, and that opens up the entire note file over here. And as you can see, it goes back into the Third John series. But you can go to those lessons, and you can read them. And if it's you go to a scripture reference, those are hot links. So if you click on the scripture reference, it automatically goes to that verse. So it's a really neat teaching teaching tool, study tool, and you can quit taking notes and just sit and listen in class and learn instead of try to write it all down. Yes, Gene, I'm being facetious. Oh, yeah, yeah. Everything that I've taught with the exception, I don't think he's finished Daniel or First John, but I think everything else is, is, is available. And, of course, what the files we have are files he gave me back in October, so they're not... They're not current, in the, and they're, they're about six months old, but um, they're, they're pretty current. And Sandy has uh, a stack of these disks in the office, and so you can write, and a number of people have been writing, and these files, that all these note files, 
are on the Dean Bible website. So people can just download those and put those files in the proper location in, um, <clears throat> in Lagos, and they can have access to it. So isn't that neat? Yeah, it includes the Logos program is free. You just pay, you just spend a lot of money on the books. But the program itself is free. So on that disc, you get the ESV. That's the only book you get. You get it free with the Logos program, and then you can add these notes to it. And so you have that much. But probably most people might want to go out and spend another fifty or a hundred dollars and get sort of their basic package, which includes a couple of Bible dictionaries and maps and a few other things like that. So, um, <clears throat> But you don't have to do that. I mean, so this, this, this gives you a Bible and their, their whole search engine programs and all of that plus, plus the notes. Now, when you go to Logos 4 and all of this finally gets converted, which should be sometime this summer, one of the really neat features in the, in the Logos version 4 is that the note files will be completely searchable. So then you can search the note files and say, well, I know Robbie said something. You just remember a word or a phrase, and you can search that word or phrase through the note files and find it. That's really going to keep me on my toes. Like, <laughs> this is getting too technical. I remember when you said, I already get that. Well, you said this back in, you know, and they give you the date. So <clears throat> I don't want any of that. But it's, a, it's, it's really neat, and Art has just done it. I mean, it just blew me away when I saw all, all that he had done and all the work that, um, that had gone into that, and he just did a, a really tremendous job. And there are other people um, out there who do other things like that in order to benefit their own study, and yet then they, one day they wake up and they go, well, you know, I bet a lot of other people would like to have this ability as well, and so they do. So that's a, a great feature to... Uh, to have. Okay. We're going to go back to the beginning here. All right. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word, spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can be here this evening to study your word, that we can be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened in our spiritual life, constantly being reminded that you are faithful to your word, faithful to your promises, and that you are the God who controls history, you are the God who oversees our lives, and that if we can just learn to relax and trust you and to put everything in your hands and cast our cares upon you, that you will take care of all the details and challenges in our lives, and we can focus on just uh, being as uh, good as students of your word as possible and being uh, and applying your word as much as possible, and that we can see you work in our lives. Father, we continue to pray for uh, Chris. We pray for his surgery on Monday. We pray that you give the doctors skill and wisdom as they seek to remove this tumor. We pray that you, they will not only be able to remove the tumor, but they will also uh, be able, but the tumor itself will not be malignant, and that uh, he will be able to recover from this without any great, great difficulty. So, Father, we put all these things in your hands. In Christ's name, amen. 
Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 11. We'll begin there. We've been studying in the life of Moses and looking at the fact that in this section there are five things that are zeroed in on by the writer of Hebrews as being examples of faith operative in the life of Moses. The first example, of course, is not his faith. It was his parents' faith. And even though, I said last time, even though there's no clear statement anywhere in Scripture, there's no indication that there was a special revelation to his parents that he was the uh, promised deliverer, how God would use him, there is every indication, I believe, that that probably took place. That is what uh, Jewish tradition has held going back uh, into the uh, pre-New Testament era as far back as we have written extra extra uh, biblical evidence. And everyone else that's listed in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 was some, is someone who responded in faith to revelation and to a promise of God. And so it seems that uh, it would just make sense, it fits the pattern, that his parents understood something uh, special about the birth of Moses and trusted God and therefore, because of their trust in God, they were not afraid. Their faith cast out their fear. Then the second example has to do with Moses as he reached adulthood, more than adulthood. He was near 40 years of age when he makes the determinative choice in his life to put the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ first. And he recognizes that he would rather suffer all of the affliction and all of the suffering and loss of everything, every detail of life that he had. Just imagine that, that if you had the opportunity to say you're either going to uh, follow the Lord Jesus Christ and lose everything, or you can keep all of your possessions and all of your security and all of your house and all of your things that give you comfort. You know, here's the option. You're going to choose one or the other, but you can't uh, really follow the Lord and be positive unless you're willing to give up everything. And that really is a choice that we all need to make at some point in our life. Are we willing to do that? The Lord will not necessarily call upon us to do that, but that is what positive volition is. Are we truly willing to serve the Lord no matter what that entails. And that's not a decision you make when you are a brand-new believer. It's not an emotional decision you make in some sort of revival church service or something of that nature because it calls upon thought and it calls upon a certain amount of spiritual information and maturity in order to reach that decision. And this is what is indicated, as I pointed out last time, in verse 26, through the use of the Greek verb hegeomai, uh, which means to reckon or to consider or to think something through. It's translated esteeming in verse 26, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. So this was a thoughtful, a conscientious decision that Moses made. It wasn't just an emotional reaction to the um, fact that this Jewish slave was being beaten by an Egyptian overseer, which is the impression that you could get from reading Exodus chapter 3 if you didn't have this information. And that's one of the important things about Scripture is that the writers of Scripture in the Old Testament 
are writing within their purpose, within their uh, what they're trying to communicate, and they don't give all of the details. Nowhere in Genesis chapter 3 are we told that the serpent is Satan. We get that from Revelation chapter 13, when you have our 12, when you have the identification of the dragon as the serpent of old, the devil. But it's not till you get to Revelation that you have a special revelation from God identifying the serpent in Genesis 3 as, as Satan. But I know of uh, at least one Old Testament professor at a evangelical seminary who says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't ever teach Genesis 3 and say the serpent there is the devil because Moses didn't say that. And that's the kind of narrowness that has really invaded a certain measure of Bible study today is you can't really rise above the level of each verse to do uh, theology by comparing Scripture with Scripture. And that's the same kind of thing here with Moses, is that if you just stick with what is revealed in Exodus 3, you might not present Moses' decision in its, mo- in, 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 in its most accurate form, because Hebrews must be taken into account. The writer of Hebrews is clearly indicating that Moses thought this, this through, um, very clearly. So, uh, verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And that leads to the third major event in his life by faith. Moses left Egypt. That's that old English word in the, in the New King James, forsook, simply means he left or he departed. And that's where we stopped last time. By faith, he forsook Egypt and fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. This is a tantalizing verse because of the words that are used here in the last part of the, uh, of the verse. He endured as one who saw, literally, who sees, and using that, that word for visibly seeing something, someone who is invisible, who can't be seen. And so it's clearly not talking about physical sight, but talking about mental perception, and that, that Moses clearly understood who he was following. He understood the attributes of God to a certain level, and he understood God's plan and purposes for Israel. And this is why he was able to endure. So as we look at the uh, words, the breakdown of the verse, begins by faith, he forsook Egypt. And the Greek verb there is katalepo, which is an aorist active indicative third person singular indicating simply to leave, to forsake, to depart, and it's uh, there's not a real technical spiritual significance to the word. It's simply describing the fact that he he left Egypt and went to Midian. So by faith he forsook, and the main thought there is he left. By faith he left, and he left by means of faith, which means his leaving was based on his perception through faith of God's promise and purpose. He is trusting in God in his leaving. He's not just getting booted out of Egypt by the Pharaoh who is angry at him because he uh, murdered this Egyptian overseer. There is more to it than that. It was, while that all is true, 
What was also going on at the same time was that Moses had already reached a decision in his soul to leave and to follow the Lord. Now, he got out of fellowship and made a a bad decision in the way he reacted when he saw the Egyptian overseer beating the slave. And that is the same kind of thing that almost everyone in this room has experienced at one time or another, that we have made a right decision based on right information to be obedient to the Scripture, and then 30 seconds later we're just as out of fellowship and carnal as anybody could possibly be, and we make some decision that could possibly really just muck everything up, and we turn around, and God in his grace does not uh, bring that sin against us and discipline us for it. It may have some impact on us, and I think in the case of Moses, it was just the immediate cause that that booted him out of, of Egypt, but he had already made the prior decision in his soul that he was going to follow the Lord completely. He was going to turn his back on all of the wealth and privilege and everything that he had as a prince of Egypt and that he was going to follow the Lord and he would be uh, leaving Egypt. So the New Testament writer says that it's by faith that he left Egypt, not because the Pharaoh was mad at him. So he's operating on the faith rest drill, trusting in the promise and the plan of God. He left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. That's the next qualification. So the writer of Hebrews is making this very clear that on the one hand, he he makes the decision to leave by faith, and then on the other hand, he reminds us it, it wasn't because the Pharaoh was angry with him. That was just a circumstantial uh, event. He, it was, that wasn't the real reason he left Egypt. He left because he was trusting in God. And then he goes on to explain why he did not fear the wrath of the king. That's what that next phrase does, is, is, is it explains the reason why he was able to not fear the king. And it has to do with what's going on in his mind. It's what's going on between his ears. That is the uh, most significant part of the spiritual life and most important part of spiritual warfare. Uh, one of the things that I remember years ago when we were writing, and here's a copy up here, writing the spiritual warfare book, is that so many people think that spiritual warfare today is battling demons or battling the devil in some sort of external uh, external fight. But the battle that we fight in the spiritual life is a battle related to our volition that takes place between our ears. Ninety-nine percent of spiritual warfare takes place between our ears where we have to think about the Word of God and decide whether or not we're going to apply it at any particular moment in relationship to the circumstances uh, that we are facing. And so that is what we see with, with Moses. He's not, uh, not afraid. That's his, the circumstantial or adverbial cause. It's not because he was afraid of the wrath of the king there, but he endured, for he endured as seeing. And that word in the, in the Greek is hurao, another participle that is a participle of cause. So it could be, or it could be translated for he endured because he saw. Uh, these adverbial participles can have a variety of different nuances. 
and you just sort of think them through in a logical way as to which ones work and which ones don't, and cause is the best one for this, for he endured because he saw or because he was as one seeing, uh, since it's a present active participle, we would want to translate that in a, as a present tense, because he was as one seeing uh, him who is invisible. Now, the word, the verb there translated endured is uh, kartoreo, and kartoreo means steadfast or strong. That goes with endurance, the verb endurance, not the, the yellowed one uh, fearing. goes with endurance, and it simply means that he was steadfast or strong. It's not hupomene. That's the word we normally find when we talk about endurance. Uh, James uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, <clears throat> to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that is the quality that is at the core of spiritual growth. This is a synonym for endurance, but it emphasizes just steadfastness or strength, someone who is going to remain or stick with their decision, he is going to be strong in terms of their decision, not weak and wimp out once he's made a decision. Just because he faces tough consequences, he's going to stick with that decision uh, as one who sees him who is invisible. So he understands who God is and what God's plan is. That's what gives him the motivation. That's what gives him the strength to stick with the circumstances no matter what they are. And he didn't have any idea that what that meant was that he was going to have to be out in the field taking care of a bunch of stinky sheep for the next 40 years. And if you want to get a good dissertation on what it's like to deal with stinky sheep, then you can either talk to uh, Dr. Collins down here, who was a vet for many years and worked in a processing plant up in Fort Worth, or you can talk to Farmer Gene Brown back in the back, who spent many years dealing with sheep in an agricultural context. And I've listened to Gene tell me all about sheep until I wasn't sure that I thought being called a shepherd was a compliment. Because what shepherds have to do with sheep isn't always that pleasant. Fortunately, that's not the point of the analogy that the Lord is using. He's dealing with other aspects of the role of a shepherd. But that's the idea is that uh, we have to we're um, we have to focus on the Lord and follow His uh, follow His leadership. Now we come to the fourth <clears throat> example of faith. This is in verse twenty-eight. Faith by faith Moses kept the Passover. Hebrews 11.28 states it, By faith he kept the Passover, which means that he observed it, he was obedient to the Lord in the Passover, and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now, I ought to give a pop quiz here and ask the question. You can, I'll give the pop quiz. You can write down the answer. Who is it that brought death upon the firstborn of the of the Egyptians. Who was it that brought death upon the firstborn of the Egyptians in Exodus? We'll get there and answer that later on. You can find out if you're right or not. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, 
lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. And so in the episode in the Old Testament related to the Passover, this was the last of the ten plagues, the ten judgments that God brought against the Egyptians because of the way they had treated the Israelites. And as the last of them, this really stands for all of them. It's not just standing for that last one, but that is the most significant and most dramatic of them, and it represents all of the plagues as Moses stood firm against all of the might and the power and the threats of the Pharaoh. He refused to yield, and he continued uh, to trust God. And so to pick this up, we're going to go back to Exodus and just do a little survey of the ten judgments that God brought against the Egyptians. So turn with me back to uh, Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Now, last week we looked at the initial part of Moses' life, his birth in chapter 2. The, and it's really covered fairly quickly with his birth, and his parents kept him for three months, put him out on the River Nile. Uh, the Pharaoh's daughter discovered him, adopted him as his own, so that he grew up within Pharaoh's household with all of the privileges and wealth that you could that that Egypt had to offer, which was everything there was in the world. He was one of the most best educated, one of the best educated, and one of the wealthiest. Uh, men in all the world. There was no detail of life that was held back from Moses. He had everything. He had power. He had position, had prestige. He had uh, wealth and money. He had everything. But when he became uh, close to 40 years of age, he clearly identified with his people. He knew who they were. And then we have the episode of his beating, or beating and uh, or rather killing the Egyptian who was beating the uh, Israelite slave. And then he he um, <clears throat> has a little episode with the Jews who are saying, "Well, why? Who do you think you are? are? You the one who you think you're the one who will deliver us?" And so there's the challenge that's brought forth uh, before him. And then it's the, his departure to Midian is described in the last part of chapter two. So that chapter two covers everything from his birth to the time that God calls him. So 80 years is covered in the second chapter. Third chapter begins with his taking care of the sheep up on uh, Mount uh, Horeb, and there he sees this uh, phenomenon of a bush that was on fire but wasn't consuming the bush, and so he thought to investigate that, and God was waiting for him, and God begins to tell him what, who he is and what he is going to do through Moses. And throughout this, I emphasize that again and again, the Lord referred to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does this in verse 6. He does it again in verse 15, again in verse 16, again in the next chapter, in uh, chapter 4, verse 5. Again and again, what God is reminding Moses of is that God made a promise of the land of Canaan to Abraham. 
And he had promised Abraham that there would be a time of about 400 years when his descendants would be out of the land and that they would be mistreated, but that God would not forget about them and that God would indeed come and to deliver them and bring them back to the land. And so he commissions Moses then to be the one to go to the Pharaoh and to seek the uh, release of the of the Israelites. And the Lord, in, in chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord promises Moses, uh, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all these wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand. So he has already described to Moses all of the things that he is going to do. So Moses goes back to Egypt fully aware of how God is going to work the process out in terms of the various uh, various judgments. In 4.22, God says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I want to make the point here that God views Israel as his, as his son, as his firstborn. He's going to take the life of the firstborn of Pharaoh. But he views Israel as his firstborn. So Israel is being viewed here and throughout the book as, in a corporate way as set apart to God for his, for his service. And so we have the story of Moses coming to, uh, coming back to Egypt and then his first confrontation with the Pharaoh. And chapter five, uh, describes that Moses, who is 80 years of age at this time, and his brother Aaron, who is 83, uh, will, uh, go to the Pharaoh to request that the Pharaoh let the people go out into the wilderness three days in order to worship the Lord. But the Pharaoh refuses uh, to allow that to happen. He seems to toy with them for a while, but then he uh, finally makes it clear that he is not going to do this. And so we come to chapter 6. In chapter 6 we begin, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For the strong hand... He will let them go. And that means that Pharaoh will make a solid decision. He's going to say, oh, well, maybe I'll let him go. Uh, he's going to reach a point where he's going to say, go, leave, take them all, take everyone out. He's going to make a very clear decision that is unmistakable for Moses to take the Israelites out of Egypt. He will, with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. Uh, verse 2, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. So again, he identifies himself as Yahweh. This is a term that's specifically associated with the Exodus and with the giving of the law. And again, he goes back to Abraham. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, I was not known to them. Now, some of you are going to go, wait a minute, if you turn back to to Genesis chapter 12, that name Yahweh is used all the way through the account with Abraham. Abraham even addresses God and speaks of God as Yahweh. Yes, that's true. He knew the name, but it is here in Exodus that that name is given significance and meaning because it is the name that is associated with uh, him bringing something into existence. It is a form of the verb hayah, the Hebrew verb to be. And the name Yahweh 
means the self-existent one. I am who I am, or I am that I am. And so uh, <clears throat> God is going to make his name known to them in a sense of of revelation of his character that they are going to learn about through the deliverance process. And in verse 4 he says, I have also established my covenant with them. And that is a reference back to the Abrahamic covenant. I have established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. So again, the focus of the promise keeps going back to the land. How many times have we seen this as we've gone through uh, Hebrews chapter 11, starting with Abraham, that the promise that Abraham focused on and Isaac focused on and Jacob focused on and Joseph focused on and now Moses is focusing on is this promise of the land that still hasn't been fulfilled in history. And it is far off in the distance. And so, so that the writer of Hebrews says, and they all viewed this city that is built without hands, and they never saw the fulfillment of God's promise in their own lives, but they trusted in the person, the character of God. And so even though they never had the tangible, empirical reality in front of them, they still trusted him. That's what faith is. Faith is the evidence of things that are not seen. And what did it just say in that passage in in Hebrews 11? That Moses... Moses made his decision as one who sees the invisible, reinforcing the fact that it is by faith, by trusting in the promise of God, even though there's no tangible expression of it in their uh, physical lifetime. And then in verse 5 we go on to read, And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. God is faithful. He does not forget. We may think he's a little concerned with the troops over in Afghanistan, or he's really busy trying to deal with issues related to the, the, the health care plan, or he's concerned about the victims of the uh, of, of the earthquake down in Chile or in Haiti, but God is omnipresent and omnipotent, and he knows every detail in each one of our lives so that no matter what we're facing, what the challenges are, what the difficulties are, what our hopes and dreams might be, it may just surprise us today, but it doesn't surprise God. God knew you were going to face this particular challenge uh, uh, a thousand years ago, a uh, hundred thousand years ago, a million years ago, far into the deep recesses of eternity past, God always knew that you were going to face whatever the challenge is right now. And he said, I've given you everything you need in your word and with the Holy Spirit for you to be able to handle this as a testimony to my grace and to my power, which is going to be made perfect or complete in you. And th- this is the promise. So God is reminding Moses again of the fact that he has, uh, he knows, he's never forgotten the covenant, the promise he made with, with uh, Abraham. And indeed, in that covenant in Genesis 15, God had said that there would be 400 years of slavery. Now he is coming uh, to fulfill that, that promise. So in verse, uh, verse 6 we read, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. 
So it's not just the ten plagues. These are judgments that God is bringing against Egypt because of their paganism, because of their idolatry, and because of the way they have treated the Israelites while they were there. And verse 7, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. It is an experiential knowledge that God is talking about when he began by saying that now they would know him by his name Yahweh. They would come to know new aspects of his character and who he is. Then you shall know that I am Yahweh your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage, as an inheritance. I am Yahweh. That last line is like a signature seal on this promise again. And so the next few chapters are going to go through the uh, ten plagues, the ten judgments upon the Egyptians. And it's interesting to go through these. I'm not going to hit every detail, but I want to hit the high points of each one of these plagues. As we go through this, so Moses, Moses and Aaron are going to challenge Pharaoh. And in chapter seven, they come to God directs Moses to take Aaron as his spokesperson. He says in verse one, "See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet." That's a great clue as to the meaning of the word of the word prophet, because it is the person who speaks or represents God. And so Aaron is going to be the one to represent Moses, the spokesperson. And God says, you shall speak all I commanded you. Verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh is already negative. He is a god. He views himself as a god. He's already rejected God and is worshiping the creature gods that have been created in the pantheon of Egypt. So God is not making Pharaoh negative to God besides none of this has to do with his soteriological position anyway. It has to do with his decision to keep the Israelites. And so God is just going to intensify a decision that Pharaoh has already uh, has already made. Verse 4, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that I may lay, lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people. Isn't that interesting? God said, bring my armies. What armies did he bring? That has to be some sort of reference to angelic armies and the relationship between the events on the earth and events within the angelic conflict. I will bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And so summary statement. Uh, verses 6, Moses and Aaron did so just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And so they're going to get, they go in, and they have uh, Moses' uh, staff, his uh, rod that he had out with the sheep, and he is to take the rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it's going to turn into a serpent, then pick it up again, which I still think is one of the great acts of uh, faith. In fact, somebody gave me a copy of Leon Hale's uh, editorial in the Chronicle last weekend, and it was a summary of Moses, and he said the same thing, that he thought that was a great act of 
great act of faith on the part of Moses. I thought, well, you know, that's just, how coincidental is that? So the first, the first plague is a judgment on the waters. And Exodus 7:17, the Lord says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. Now, it's not going to be simply, they're not going to just have water coloring in there. It's not, not, God's not going to have Moses just, just pour some food coloring into the Nile, and it's going to uh, turn red. It's going to turn to blood. Uh, which is why, and if you think about all of the, the dynamics of that, if you've ever worked around blood, if you've been uh, in the medical profession or if you've been a hunter and you've worked with, with blood, it is, it is sticky and there is a stench and it attracts flies and lice and all of those other things. That's why some people say, well, if, you know, if, if the water turns to blood and then you get the lice, uh, the, the, the lice and the flies and the other judgments, that just sort of naturally falls out. Well, there may, may be some natural relationships among the judgments, but that doesn't mean that they're not completely governed and controlled by God. And it's not some sort of, of uh, <clears throat> the result of a volcanic eruption out in uh, some uh, island in the Mediterranean or some other area that has cast a certain amount of uh, volcanic ash into the air, which causes the uh, water in the Nile to change color. This is not uh, not some sort of incident like that. It is changed to blood, and it kills everything in it. The fish die, and they get cast up on the banks of the river and they 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 die and their carcasses rot and they stink and um, verse 18 and and the Egyptians can't drink any of the water and it's the, all the water from the Nile which is essential especially in that arid climate of of the Nile and for all of their economy and what you see if you look at the total picture of the plagues is that by the time we get through with these judgments, God has absolutely wiped out the economy of Egypt. It is amazing to think that they were able to do anything for the next two or three hundred years. He has devastated their economy. Their agricultural potential has been, has been completely wasted. Their military industrial complex is completely destroyed. Uh, by the by the Red Sea, there is nothing left. They have to completely rebuild uh, their civilization, and so that would indicate that this would be a period of time historically when we would find little said, if anything, uh, about Egypt. And so God orders Moses to do this, and he does. And in verse 22, we read that uh, the Pharaoh, the the magicians of Pharaoh duplicated this. This is shows demon activity there and demonic counterfeit, and so Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He is hardening it himself. He sees, oh, this is just a magic trick, and this isn't anything from God, and so he turns his back on it. So seven days goes by, a week goes by. Uh, after striking the river, and then the Lord sent Moses back to Pharaoh, and we have the second plague, which has to do with frogs. Now, there's a natural causation, you would think. Once the Nile turned to blood, the frogs are going to decide to look somewhere else for water, and so they're going to start coming out of the Nile. But this is much more so. I mean, this is just hundreds and thousands 
of frogs. Now, I don't want to be responsible for anybody having any nightmares. Last week, I had one person say, you know, if you're going to talk about snakes again, let me know, and I'll quit watching class because I had nightmares all night. And I know there's going to be somebody who's going to say, oh, I don't like frogs, and I'm going to have nightmares about frogs tonight. Well, there were frogs everywhere. There were frogs in everything. You would go into the pantry and open up your 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 stores of food, and there were frogs that were popping out everywhere. This was a devastating judgment that was destructive of all of the food stores that they had in in Egypt, and that was part of the idea is to wipe out their ability to to feed themselves, to starve them to death, basically, so that they would want to get rid of all of the all of the Jews. So Moses is told in verse uh, verse five, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered uh, covered the land of Egypt. And so Pharaoh calls upon Moses to pray to the Lord to let the people go. And he says, uh, he acts like he's going to make this decision to let the people go out and worship for three days. And so he makes that decision, but as soon as the frogs are gone, he thinks better of his decision, says, no, I'm not going to let you go. So he hardens his heart again, and then we come to the third plague, which is a plague of lice. Now, the plague of lice and the plague of flies seems to make sense in a cause, natural causation because when you have a lot of dead fish, and you have a lot of dead uh, dead frogs and probably a few other dead things because of the drinking the uh, bloody water and everything else, then you would get a plague of flies and lice and various other uh, insects that would come out as a result of all of that uh, <coughs> all of that activity and so in verse sixteen, the Lord tells Moses to uh, tell Aaron to stretch out your rod, strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. So lice are just going to come up from the dust. If you have lived around Texas for long and you go someplace down near the beach or you go to uh, some of the places up in the hill country and you're out among the uh, on, on the rivers where there is some sand and beach and you get into sand fleas, uh, you have some idea of this, or chiggers. Now, I was told the other day I was going someplace, and they said, now you have to watch out because there's a lot of chiggers out there. And I thought the fire ants had killed all the chiggers in Texas, but apparently they haven't. But that's what it's like. If you've ever had a chigger infestation or sand fleas have gotten uh, a hold of you, then you know what how miserable something like this could be. And just multiply that about a thousandfold. But the magicians were able to also duplicate this or counterfeit this. Or, excuse me, they were not able to uh, uh, do this or duplicate this. So from this point on, there's no counterfeit, no duplication. And the magician said to Pharaoh, well, this, this must be God because we can't do it. And But Pharaoh's heart still grew hard. Now he's beginning to get angry and exceedingly stubborn. And so that goes to the next plague, which is the plague of flies. And again, uh, the Lord orders uh, Pharaoh to let his people go. Or else, if not, verse uh, 21, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and on everybody and all the houses of the Egyptians will be filled with flies. And in that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no flies will be there. Now, this is where the the miraculous, it becomes uh, so obvious, is that these plagues, which um, are 
covering everybody who's Egyptian, but it's not touching the Israelites. There's, there's no reason the flies would like, would all go on, for, you know, a simple analogy on one side of the street instead of the other side of the street. I remember a little bit about what this was like when we first moved up to, up to Connecticut. And that's farm country. And you always knew when, when it was, when it was springtime and it was planting time and there were all these farms all around us that grew corn. Wonderful, tasty corn. It's amazing what produces really good corn. Because about the middle of May, they would cover the fields in cow manure. Loads of cow manure. And about that time, finally, it's spring. You're opening the windows in your house because they don't have uh, central air up there. So you have to open the windows in your house. And you just take one deep breath and you go, oh, spring really stinks. And you smelled it everywhere. And all of that manure on all of those fields all around where we lived would bring a host of flies. You could count on it every spring, every September. You would just get these fly infestations because of all the, all the manure on the fields. So it just drives you absolutely, absolutely crazy. And this was a, a thousand times more. But God protected the Israelites, and there were no flies in Goshen. But they were, they focused on the area where the Egyptians lived, and especially the house of Moses. So, Pharaoh gets mad, gets frustrated, tells him to go sacrifice to his people. But again, he's going to change his mind and harden his heart by the end of the chapter. And so we get to the fifth plague. And God warns him in chapter 9, verse 2, If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the oxen, on the sheep, a very severe pestilence. So this wipes out all of their livestock, not just cattle, it's Horses, donkeys, camels, oxen, everything, all of their uh, livestock for their meat, for their, uh, uh, to, 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 to pull the plows, uh, for, for providing uh, energy for work, everything is going to get, uh, get wiped out. Verse 4, and the Lord will make a difference between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so nothing shall die of all that belongs to the uh, children of Israel. And this is exactly what happened. Verse 6 says that the next day all the livestock of Egypt died, but the livestock of the children of Israel, no one died. Now, that's a lot of dead animals. So you not only have had about a month earlier, you had all the dead dead fish, and then you had all of the flies and the lice. Now you have carcasses of all your animals and cattle and camel and oxen, and, and all of your livestock's gone. You have wiped out, just almost wiped out all of the agriculture. And now God is going to focus on the people in the sixth plague and on boils. And he is going to bring boils upon all the people. It tells uh, Moses to take ashes from a furnace scattered in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and it will become fine dust all over the land of Egypt and cause boils that break out into sores. So now everybody is they're not only hungry, they're not only having to deal with the stench in the land and the the fact that they're they're starving to death because they're losing all of their all of their uh, food, but now they are personally miserable and their bodies are covered with these uh, extremely uh, painful sores that are superating everywhere and there's no uh, there's no relief. And then there's a seventh plague. Now it's going to wipe out their their homes. This is going to be a fiery hail. 
that comes from heaven. In 9.22, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his hand, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Now, this is not a volcanic, volcanic eruption. This is hail mixed with fire. In terms of the vocabulary, it didn't just look like it. It says there was hail, verse 24, mingle, hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very light, heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And it was throughout the entire land except, verse 26, only in the land of Goshen where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. So this is going to wipe out their homes. This is going to burn uh, what is still managed to survive out in the fields. But if case anything is left... There will be another plague, <clears throat> the eighth plague, which is going to be locusts or grasshoppers that God is going to send upon the land of Egypt to eat every uh, herb of the land at the end of verse 12, all that the hail has left. So what God is doing is he is systematically destroying all of the food, all of the agriculture, all of the economy in Egypt so that there is absolutely nothing Left and the people are miserable, and their homes and dwellings and everything have been destroyed by the by the hail. And then he is going to. We have real psychological warfare here in the ninth plague, which is darkness. That God puts this heavy darkness upon the land for three days. No sun will shine for three days. The land will be so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face. This is frightening to people. There is no uh, normal or natural explanation for this. Verse 23 says, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Isn't that fantastic how God separated and protected the Israelites, and they had everything, and they're not touched by anything. And so Pharaoh calls to Moses, Go serve the Lord, tells him to leave again, and then he's going to go back on it. The Lord hardens his heart, and he decides not to let them go. And so the last and final plague will come when we have the answer to our question. Exodus 11:4. then uh, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. Now, those of us who grew up learning about the Exodus and the plagues and the Passover from Cecil B. DeMille and the Ten Commandments saw the angel of death, and you had that spooky music, and you had the clouds coming and the fog coming down and coming in under the, under the doors, and the angel of death. There's no angel of death anywhere in Exodus. And I've said that before, and then a friend of mine, Recently, that was uh, visiting here, Andy Wood was here, and he said, you know, Robbie, you, you said angel of death, but I remember one of my seminary professors pointed out that there's no angel of death there. I went home looked, I said, there's no angel of death there. See, we all get affected by that. We read stuff into it. It's not an angel of death. It's God. God says, I will visit them. And so it is the Lord himself who comes and takes the life of the firstborn, not just the firstborn uh, in the human households, but even the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the animals. What animals are left? And there'll be such a great cry 
throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does, does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. God is able to protect the believer from whatever he needs to be protected from, because God is able. Now, one of the things that's going on here, and I'll come back, put this up next week, is that each of these plagues is designed to be a really nasty insult to the gods of Egypt. See, God is not a respecter of other people's false religions. He doesn't play nice with them and say, okay, you have your right to your view. God comes in and he's going to show that all the gods of Egypt are useless, impotent, and non-existent. Uh, the, turning the water into blood, the Nile represented the god, uh, the go- goddess of the Nile, Isis. Uh, also, the bull god was the male god related to the Nile, and Kanum was another guardian of the Nile. The frogs uh, were represented by Heket, who was the uh, p- depicted in, in her statues as having a frog's head. Uh, gnats related to Set, the god of the desert. Remember, they took the dust and the lice came up from the dust, the sand of the desert. And so the gnats are <coughs> a slap in the face to their uh, desert god. Then flies, this is related to uh, Re, or Ra, the sun god, and the god Uachit, uh represented by the fly. And you have the death of the cattle, which is a, an assault on Hathos, who was a goddess represented with a cow's head, and Apis, the bull god, the symbol of fertility. The boils were related to Sekhmet, the goddess uh, who had power over disease, and Sunu, the pestilence god, and Isis, who was also the goddess of healing. Many gods and goddesses have different roles and functions. The fiery hail had to do with Newt, the sky goddess, and Osiris, the god of crops and fertility, as well as Set, the sky god, the grasshopper and locust. Uh, was a, was an assault against again against Newt the sky goddess and Osiris the god of the crops and fertility. Uh, darkness was an assault against uh, Ra the sun god and Horus the the uh, uh, male sun god and Newt the sky god. So all these I'll put this up again next week. This it's in this same chart. I just took it from a gr- great uh, summary chart in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, but this shows that. God is doing something in these plagues. He is not just bringing a judgment against it, against the Egyptians, but he is destroying their hope in their false position. He's wiping out their hope. He's wiping out their, their uh, false religion, which is the only basis for life. He's destroying the belief in Pharaoh, who is the uh, incarnation of the God, and so God is, is multitasking once again here, showing that he is the only true God and he can deliver Israel no matter what circumstances uh, they are in. And so he is going to, he de- shows that he is the God over life, which is the essence of what happens at the Passover. And so we'll come back and deal with the Passover, the 10th plague specifically, uh, next time uh, when we come back. Just tie this together, spend a little more time on it. Uh, when we come back in a couple of weeks after the conference. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded of your power, and to be reminded that no matter what we face, it's nothing like those who have 
uh, faced these types of situations in the Old Testament and have seen your uh, tremendous, remarkable power to deliver in the midst of the most uh, overwhelming and oppressive of situations and circumstances. It's a challenge to us to be like these men that are mentioned, uh, men and women mentioned in Hebrews 11, to trust you and to live our life based on faith and not by sight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.